0: You are living in a 24 7, 365 culture. And the idea of Sabbath is countercultural and certainly counterintuitive. One mom was telling me about her experience last Sunday. It had been a long time since they, as a family, had Sabbath together. So after the service, they resolved they would go home, and she had some uh, chili in the refrigerator. That's a great idea some chili on a cold Sunday afternoon. And they as a family played some games together and they had some chili. And then they turned on the playoff games, enjoyed a couple of playoff games. You see, Sabbath is stopping doing what we normally do and doing what we don't normally do. The family didn't have to go online to kind of answer emails. They didn't have to knock out the laundry. They didn't have to pay the bills or balance the checkbook. They didn't have to pull away from each other. They could actually pull in tight and be together as a family sabbath has to do with ceasing, with stopping throughout the week you may be a manager but on the sabbath you don't have to manage anything through the week you may be a leader but on the sabbath you don't have to lead anything through the week you may be a student but you don't have to be a student on the sabbath you may be a pastor but you don't have to pastor anybody on a sabbath you may be a physician you don't take care of anybody on the sabbath sabbath is your day to rest and recuperate Receiving the Sabbath is like receiving a gift. It's saying that I'm not only a workhorse. I am a human being made in the image of God and I'm going to follow my creator's example. I want you to learn how to slow down, you know. Take it down a few thousand RPM. Cuz the Sabbath is all about resting, slowing down. Now I have many bad habits, but one of my bad habits currently is that I will jump into the car feeling I'm in a hurry. I'll kind of start the engine, drop it in the gear and take off. And as I'm going down the road, I'll begin to put my seatbelt on. So I'm recognizing to myself when I start the car, R, you can slow down. You can let the car engine warm up. You can actually put your seatbelt on now and then drop it in the gear and take off. So you pray for me as I learn about slowing down. <laughs> it may look I'm calm on the outside, but really inside the motors are really, the engine's really turning. On the Sabbath, we practice stopping. During the week we're moving, right? But on the Sabbath we're slowing and we're stopping. Through the week we're engaging, but on the Sabbath we're disengaging. We suffer from, in our society, what is known as hurry sickness. One of the great illusions of our day is that hurrying will buy us more time. I pulled into a service station recently and it said, We help you move faster. What if my primary need isn't to move faster? We will buy anything if it will help us to hurry. The best-selling shampoo in America rose to the top because it combines shampoo with conditioner in one step. Domino's became the number one pizza in America, not because they sell good pizza, but they promised to deliver in 30 minutes or less. A Detroit hospital picking up on the Domino's theme said, Uh, We'll see you within 20 minutes or your visit is free. And we go to the Golden Arches not because it's good food, not because it's healthy food, but because it is fast food, right? It is fast food. So the owner, uh, founder of McDonald's, Croc, realized that people had to actually park their cars, go in and take an order, right? Get their food and sit down at the table and eat it. So they invented something known as the drive through so we can eat our food faster and now spill it all over ourselves, right? All of these uh, time-saving devices hit us so that we can save time. Hurry sickness is an attempt to accomplish more and more things, to participate in more and more activities in less and less time. We're too busy to let our four-year-old tie his shoes. We're too busy to slow down and really enjoy the people we're eating with and savor our food. We're like a chicken with its head cut off running around. And as my friend Mark tells me, that the busiest chicken in the barnyard is the one with its head cut off. Jesus was quite aware of this phenomenon in his day. He he repeatedly withdrew from crowds and activities into solitude and silence to be alone with his father's. His father. He said to his disciples, returning from ministry, "Come away for a while and rest." We must continually and ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. How do you know when you've got it bad? Hurry sickness. Well, when you're in traffic and there's two lanes, you'll kind of study the make, the model, the year of the car, and the age of the driver, and get behind that one because you think he's going to go faster from the light. Or if you're in the grocery store. You kind of study the checkout lines, the sort of the speed of the checker, back in the days when they checked you out, and then look at the number of items in the cart, right? How full the cart is, and see which one's going to be quicker and get into that. Now, let me qualify to you. I really hate it when my time is being wasted. Don't you? When you're sort of unproductive with your time, I want my time to really count and really matter. So what I do is I hurry. I suffer from hurry sickness. But there's another spiritual discipline known as unplugging. Just like slowing down is counter- countercultural, so is unplugging. We used to have the boundary of coming home and being off. Technology has radically changed American culture. We're accessible now, even when we're off. People can cell phone us, they can text us, they can shoot us an email. You know, when you go on vacation and you haven't been looking at your email for a while? It takes about two days to kind of dig through that pile. You know what I'm talking about? And after we get caught up, it's normal to be accessible once again. Normal life for America includes having a cell phone, which makes you available even when you're eating or having a good conversation. Normalcy includes meetings where people type notes into computers and um, PDAs, all the while looking down, rather than looking in the face of the person presenting. We're getting used as a culture to faceless communications, doing our banking online. How many do their banking online? Good, we do too. Getting our education off campus, having a meeting with somebody without traveling, sending a birthday card electronically. You ever had a birthday card sent to you from 10 feet away? The person didn't walk to your office and say, Happy Birthday, they sent you an electronic birthday card. What's up with that? What I'm saying is we're losing this sense of being together, of seeing each other's face, of reading each other's body language, of hearing the tone of voice. The estimates now are that we spend 30 hours a week online. How about you? Staring into a computer. And we spend somewhere between four to eight hours per day listening to radio and television. It goes up in playoff season, doesn't it? So we need to learn what it means to unplug and slow down, to pull away from the television set, to pull away from the computer and actually talk to a real-life human being. (laughs) The miracle I'm about to tell you about happened on the Sabbath. Jesus was practicing slowing down. He was moving slowly through a crowd. He didn't have to practice unplugging because there wasn't technology like we have then. The miracle took place at the Pool of Bethesda, which was just inside the Sheep Gate in the city of Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, there were all kinds of gates leading into the city. And there was one in particular, the Sheep Gate, the northeast part of the city, where people would bring their sheep and offer them to the Lord. And beside this gate was a pool, the Pool of Bethesda. Now, in Hebrew, the word Bethesda means house of mercy or house of flowing. And apparently... This pool rippled or stirred once in a while. while. It was fed by a subterranean pool. Archaeologists have found this pool of Bethesda in the 1880s to confirm what occurs in the Bible. Apparently somebody was in the pool and concluded they were made well because of the stirring of the waters. And so the legend spread throughout the city that there's healing at this pool. And though the earliest manuscripts don't support this, in verses 4 and 5 it says, an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the waters, and the first one coming in was made well. As a result, hundreds of people came to the pool of Bethesda to be healed. Now we know that certain springs are known for their healings. For instance, Tarpon Springs, or Berkeley Springs, or Colorado Springs. People would come to these places to receive their healings. And there was built at this place five porticos, five columns. Apparently porches were built there with awnings on top of them so that those who were waiting for their healing wouldn't have to be in the sun. And verse 3 of this text says, A great number of disabled people used to lie there. Hundreds of people came to the pool of Bethesda. And on this Sabbath, Jesus came by himself. He was not with his disciples. He came incognito. And what did he see? He saw the sick, the undiagnosed, the incurable diseases. He saw the feverish, those with temperatures rising above 102, 104, sitting in the shade because the sun was unbearable. And he saw the blind. Some of them were congenitally blind, blind from birth and some had become blind more recently, both of which could not see. And he saw the lame, those that couldn't walk themselves into the pool of Bethesda, they were waiting for someone to carry them. And he saw the withered, literally the paralyzed, the ones without strength. It doesn't take much imagination to see this scene at the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath of Jesus beside them that were broken. If this is the pool of humanity... Can you see yourself in this picture? There's a mom that's been running herself ragged. She's running from one thing to the next. She's driving her kids from one activity to the next. She's built a schedule that will only work if she hits all the green lights. She doesn't give herself any downtime. She doesn't give herself a rest. And she's seated there at the pool. And there's a young man, he's also beside the pool, He's plugged in. He's online all the time. He does his work online. He listens to music online. He watches his movies online. He Skypes online. And he buys his stuff online. 30, 40, 50 hours a week, he's online. He's seated by the pool. In verse 3, we see the universality of brokenness. Now, Jesus will encounter one person, but he will have seen all the broken people lying there. The man he will help will be the worst case there for 38 years. But by no means is this broken man the only one who is broken beside the pool of Bethesda. And here we see our first reality that we, all of humanity, are broken. We get broken in life. We come broken out of the box. Brokenness is universal. Everywhere, no matter where we look, we see brokenness. We see brokenness in our own lives and we see brokenness in the lives of others. Say to yourself, there are broken places in my life. And say to your neighbor, I have some broken places in my life just like you do. Go ahead and say that to each other. Sense of agreement's breaking out. You are broken but you are not alone. You're surrounded by all kinds of broken people. (laughs) I heard somebody say recently that my brokenness was, I didn't know I was broken, (laughs) but now I'm just as broken as everybody else is. You see, on this occasion, Jesus was alone, without his disciples, able to travel incognito. He stood unnoticed there beside the pool of Bethesda, and his tender eyes surveyed the humanity around the pool. He saw them and felt compassion in his heart for them. And his gaze settled on one of the worst cases, a man confined to his bed for, 18 year, for 38 years, a man whose life was defined by his mat, a man who couldn't work, a man who couldn't build his own house or fix his roof. What was it like to be paralyzed? The man couldn't go for a walk. He couldn't climb a flight of stairs. He couldn't hold on to a job. He couldn't make himself his own dinner. He couldn't have a wife or children. He couldn't control his bladder or his bowel. But what could he do? He could be be there on his mat. He could wait beside the pool. He could ask others for help. He could beg for money. But Jesus asked him the question, the transformational question, do you want to get well? Do you want to become whole? Do you want to become sound? Now there are questions in life that we do not ask, right? You don't ask a fisherman, if you are a fisherman, are you catching anything? You never ask a fisherman, are you catching anything? Because if he is, he'll say, I'm having a few bites. And if he's not, he'll resent the question. And you never ask a coach, let's say as an NFL coach, do you think, coach, you're going to win the game? Especially if you're the Redskins coach, right? (laughs) Now just a word of comfort to you Ravens fans because you're experiencing this sense of loss now? Speaking on behalf of all the Redskins fans, we know exactly how you feel. (laughs) But you never ask a coach, do you think you'll win the game? Because even if he's playing the worst team in the league, he'll tell you about the injuries on his team, how well coached the other team is, how underrated they are, how they play hard to win this game. And you never ask a man with his head under the hood of his car, stalled beside the road, are you having any problems? Of course he's having problems or he wouldn't have his head underneath his hood beside the road. And you never ask a woman, are you pregnant, right? You've learned that one? <laughs> and the foreboding forbidden, forbidden question in our culture is, are you gaining weight or losing weight? Or No, no, you never talk about weight, right? That one's totally off limits. But Jesus here was asking a profound question. Do you want to be healed? It's a question that Christ wants Each of us to ask ourselves and to hear his voice, Do you want to be healed? For the paralyzed man, this was a big question. For some invalids, to get better would mean to lose their living. Some invalids are better off not working than working. If he looked beyond his own porch where he lay, he would see men carrying their burdens. And to become well would mean to carry his own burden, to step into larger responsibilities. So Jesus asked him the question, do you want to become well? Hmm. It's a good question we all must face. If you're not a believer, I ask you this question. Do you want to become well? Do you want to become healed? Do you want to be forgiven? Do you want your life to become brand new? Because if you want to be healed, you can be healed this very day. Christ is speaking to you. He is saying to you, I have the power to heal your soul. If you choose to be unconverted, even though you have the knowledge of Christ, it will because you've chosen to be. But Christ has the power to heal you. And if you are a Christian, it is a question we must ask ourselves. Do we really want to be healed? Do you want the work of God to continue in your life of healing your soul? interior soul. You see, there's a healing that happened at your conversion. Your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Your sins were blotted out. You received the Holy Spirit. But one of the ongoing works of God in your life is to continue to heal you. You ever ask yourself this question, Why am I so angry? Anger comes from your plans being foiled. Anger comes from trying to get somewhere and being blocked. So why does peace seem so evasive to you? Why is God's power not flowing in your life? Why is his joy so fleeting? It could be that there is anger in your soul, just beneath the surface. You get angry at the slightest provocation. You snap at people routinely, and you know there's something wrong with your soul. Your anger is rooted deep in your soul, and Jesus is asking you, do you really want to get well? There may be memories of your past that need to heal. Memories that become buried in our souls of injuries that also can heal. Our God is a God who knocks at the door (laughs) asking for entrance into those private places so as to heal those memories. I've told you about one healing that happened in my own life about a year ago. I had actually forgotten this memory. It was a memory of being just six years old. In my house with my father. My father was in a drunken rage. And he was saying all kinds of unkind things to me. You see, drunken people don't always know that there's broken things inside the house. And broken people, they themselves are broken. And as he was ranting and raving, I looked around the scene in the living room, and things were turned over everywhere. And there also was a window. And the window was broken. And one of the things I felt growing up was that God was far from me that God was not close to me, that God didn't care about my situation. And there in that moment, I looked through that window and I saw the face of Jesus. And Jesus was weeping. He was weeping for me and for my family because he knew the brokenness inside that family. And God was healing that memory of mine. There may be shame that you have carried since you've been a child. Shame is losing your face. You see, we give our face to others and receive their face, but some of us hide our head in shame. And where there is shame, there is always contempt, a contempt we poured onto ourselves, or a contempt that's been poured onto us from others. But God is able to heal the shame and the guilt and the contempt we feel. There may be a bitterness inside your soul that God really wants to heal. See that no one misses the grace of God, that no root of bitterness wells up within them. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is He begins to heal that bitterness inside of us. You see, if you're a Christian, a question you need to ask yourself is, do I really want to get healed? I'm speaking here about bitterness and unresolved conflicts and things that lie hidden within us. We've been offended and that wound lies buried beneath our soul much like what's buried beneath Fort Detrick. It's toxic. (laughs) We don't feel God's power coursing through our souls or joy filling us or His peace calming us. But I want to tell you that God has the power to heal you and God has joy He wants to give you and God has a peace that can flood into your soul. And the invalid man, verse 7, said, Sir... I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm trying to get in, somebody else goes down ahead of me. He has given in to his illness, becoming a prisoner of despair. And so often people succumb to their illness, bedding down with their addiction, with their alcoholism. And their soul becomes paralyzed. There is a physical paralysis and there is a spiritual paralysis. Paralysis. Spiritual paralysis is avoiding responsibility, becoming more and more self-centered, demanding more and more sympathies from others, feeling more self-pity. Jesus said to the man, Get up, <laughs> pick up your mat, and walk. The invalid wanted to be healed, just like all of us really do. And day after day, he stood beside the pool of Bethesda. He said, I have no one to help me. He desired to be healed, but he had no one to help him. He realized he could not do it by himself. He couldn't get to the pool fast enough when the waters were stirred. 38 years of impotence. 38 years of not being well. 38 years of not being able to jump into the pool, of realizing he needed outside help. The paralysis, he wanted to be healed, But he knew he couldn't cure himself. So Jesus gave him three commands. The first of them was, get up. The second was, pick up your mat. And the third was, walk. And the three commands required, first of all, faith. The man had to believe, just like you have to believe, that God has the power to heal you. The secondly required trust, shifting his trust from himself or from others or from the pool and trusting in Christ alone. And the third thing it required was obedience in doing what God would ask him to do. When he realized he could not heal himself, and none of us can, and looked with obedience to Christ, trusting him, the man stood up. And suddenly, the muscles that had atrophied became smooth and strong. The bones that become weakened over the years strengthened and also became strong. And the man who could not support himself stood to his feet, He stood up, he picked up his mat, and he walked. For 38 years, sickness had defined this man. And sickness can steal the very place of God. It can become our calling card, our touchstone. It can be that which we define ourselves. No wonder Jesus asked the question to the man, Do you want to get well? You see, not everybody wants to get well. As I imagine the scene, what I see happening is... Jesus, first of all, talking to the man and then talking to others around the pool, saying, do you want to get well? 38 years of monotony, 38 years of futility, 38 years of self-pity, 38 years of poisonous envy and pride, 38 years of never being able to work, 38 years of never being able to travel, 38 years of never being able to cook. Kind of sounds like me. 38 years of a life without obligation. And Jesus, in that very moment, whisked away his entire past and gave him a present and a future to step into. Now the man could work. Now the man could build himself a house. Now the man could take himself a wife and have children. Now the man could step into wholeness and wellness. Jesus said, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. So let me ask you the question, do you want to get well? Do you really want to become whole? Do you really want to become sound? Jesus could have asked this question to Nicodemus. Nicodemus was religious and educated and powerful and connected. He could have said to him, Nicodemus, do you want to become well? But what he said to him is, no one will see the kingdom of heaven unless he's born again. He could have said this question to the Samaritan woman. Do you want to become well? I know you're thirsty. I know you're broken. I know day after day you come to this well seeking water. But the water, the wells of this world will never satisfy your soul. Do you want to become well? But he said this question to this man who was beside the pool. Do you want to become well? At once the man was cured and picked up his mat and he walked. I heard recently at Nyack College up in New York, they were having meetings on healings. Each of the professors was taking a turn on healing. And the students were praying about healing. And one of the students was there who said to the professor before the evening session, I feel some warmth in my hands. My hands are like on fire. The professor said, And what else do you see? And she said, I, I have this vision, this in my mind of a student being healed whose ankles and feet are broken. And he said, let's test this to the student body. So he said to all the students, he says, is there anybody out there with um, wounded ankle or foot? And one of the students, who was a basketball player, said, you know, I was praying before I came in. If this is my night, I will come forward. And he had rolled his ankle, he had injured his ankle, and he came up forward. (laughs) And the professor said to the one with the warm hands, well, you have the warm hands, leg and on his ankle. And he began to testify, the student, with the rolled ankle. He said, it's not only about the physical injury, but since I've been injured I've been drinking very heavily. I've also been taking prescription drugs and my own family has a history of alcoholism and drug addiction. It's been passed down to me. And as they prayed over this individual, there was a healing to his soul but also a healing to his body. You see, God was at work in that student body through that one who had the vision of someone being healed. And this man who had not walked in 38 years stood up. He picked up his mat and he walked. And the day on which this took place was the Sabbath. (laughs) Do you see that in verse 9? It took place on the Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. And the law forbids you to carry your own mat. <laughs> now, there's a lot of things they could have said. They could have said, wow, you're walking. It's been a long time since I've seen you up on your feet. But now you're walking. But they said to the man, it's the Sabbath. And the Sabbath requires you not to carry your own mat. You see, they had made rules and regulations about Sabbath. One of those rules and regulations was there'd be no healings on the Sabbath. 6 days you can heal. But on the Sabbath there will be no healings. There also was a rule and regulation about carrying a burden. The Pharisees argued about carrying a feather. They, they argued about carrying a handkerchief. <laughs> they said if the handkerchief is on the top floor and you can't carry it to the bottom floor but you can wear it. So to wear the handkerchief is not to carry the burden but to carry it is to carry yourself a burden. So they said to this man carrying this mat is carrying a burden. You can't carry your mat on the the Sabbath. Jesus is saying that people matter much more than rules and regulations. You see, the Pharisees kept an eye on Jesus, scrupulously studying Him, judging Him, figuring out what He was doing to break their law. And Jesus was clearly establishing the fact that I am Lord of the Sabbath. This is how the Sabbath is kept, for doing something good not for doing something evil, for saving a life. You see, the Pharisees who kept Sabbath plotted against Jesus. Persecution broke out against him. And so they had this conversation with the man. And the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. But they asked him, who is this fellow who asked you to pick it up and walk? The man had no idea who Jesus was. But Jesus had brought a physical healing into his life. And later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And he went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had made him well. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jews persecuted him, verse 17. And Jesus said to them, My Father is at his work to this very day." Do you know what he was saying? That in the very beginning God did his work, right? God in six days created, but on the seventh day he rested. When God finished his work of creation he stopped working. On the seventh day he rested and made the seventh day holy. There on the cross Jesus Christ finished his work. The rest is the rest of God. God entered into a Sabbath rest. And the Sabbath is simply a picture of the Sabbath rest we have in God. His work is finished. You see, God has always been at work from the very beginning. And God is at work to this day. God is at work in places like Indonesia. God is at work in your life. God is working through your family. God is at work in our community. God is at work in our nation. Did you hear the speech on Tuesday night? There were two government officials, (laughs) Homeland Security and Attorney General, both of whom read from the Scriptures. I tell you, when our public officials start reading from the Scriptures, God is at work in our nation. God is doing a work in our nation. God is awakening our nation. And the miracle of the, the one shot... The congresswoman shot that she did not perish there. That there was one to attend to her. That there was one to come, the EMTs to come and attend to her. That there was an emergency department that took care of her. 38 minutes was in the surgery. Now she's sitting up and responding to questions. That's a work of God in her life. I don't know if she knows the Lord, but God is at work major in her life. What I'm saying is God is working out His plans God has been at work from the very beginning till now and what God really wants to do is bring restoration to our lives. God really wants to heal us from the inside out. And here was a man who was an invalid for 38 years. He had never stood to his feet and Jesus said, get up, take off your mat and walk. You see what God does is he takes broken things and he heals them. In the year 1463, in the city of Florence, Italy, there was a commission from the city fathers to build a statue representative that all the people of Florence would be proud of. And so the artist was trying to transport this huge slab of marble to the place where he would sculpt. But in transporting it, it became broken. And for 38 years, that slab of marble lay in Florence, Italy, until the year 1501, when another artisan was commissioned, his name was Michelangelo. And Michelangelo took that block of marble that was broken, and he began to carve and chip away and sand at it. And somebody, well, he made David. And David, after he conquered Goliath in the battle, there's a beautiful portrayal of David in marble. And somebody said to him, Michelangelo, how did you do such a beautiful sculpture? And he said, all that was not David... I carved away. And what God is saying to you is, all that's not authentically, truly you, I really want to carve away. And all that is broken inside of you, I really want to heal. For I am a God who restores, and I'm a God who heals, and I'm a God who forgives, and I'm a God who replenishes. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. One last verse. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16. It says these words, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or what you drink with regard to a religious festival, new moon celebration, or Sabbath day. These are just a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. About 33 years ago, I met somebody who was the most beautiful person I ever met. And it took great courage for me to ask her out. It took more courage for me to ask for a picture because she was the daughter of a pastor. And I think that picture for me was probably the closest thing I ever came to idolatry because I looked at that picture in the morning, and the evening. When I was going to bed at night, I saw her picture. I looked forward to the next time together. But then, almost 29 years ago, we got married. And now I don't have to look at the picture anymore <laughs> because I have the reality. I get to wake up next to her And I have dinner with her. I have now a wife. I've stepped into the reality of the relationship. You see, the Sabbath for you is just the picture of the Sabbath rest God would give to you in Christ. The reality is Christ. The picture of rest is the Sabbath. So don't judge each other how you celebrate Sabbath. If you want to go on the Cooking Network and learn how to make beautiful dishes, go hard into it, okay? I know you don't cook much through the week. Easy Mac, things like that. But if you want on your Sabbath to make meals, go at it. If you sit around a desk all week long and you want to go skiing on your Sabbath, right? You want to take hike up a mountain. Don't judge somebody for taking a hike or for going skiing on their Sabbath. If you want to take a long nap because you're worn out, (laughs) we're not going to judge you because it's your Sabbath. It's your day of replenishment. What I really want you to step into is the rest that Christ would give to you. And the picture of that is your Sabbath. Pray with me, would you please? Father, the question you're asking us this morning is, do we really want to become well? Do we really want to become healed? You asked the question to an invalid man almost 2,000 years ago. You sat beside a pool to Bethesda, the house of mercy. And you asked him, Do you want to become well? And he had all kinds of excuses and rationalizations, blame almost, that he wasn't well. And then you said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. You ask us the very same question, Do we really want to become well? And our honest answer may be, I'm not sure. Maybe. I think so. All right, well, what is health all about? Father, would you begin a deep work in our souls of that which lies buried within, showing us our own brokenness, and begin healing those broken places inside each and every one of us. Those memories that lie buried, the anger that lies inside of our soul, our own shame and contempt we feel towards ourselves. But we see ourselves as made in your likeness and image, as crowned with glory and honor, as somebody you deeply love and have fond affection for and have come to restore us. God, do your great work of restoration in the lives of your people. May you carve away all that is not true and authentic of them and help them to find the true self you meant them to be. Father, heal us, we pray, in the name of Jesus.